0: Take your Bibles with me this morning and open for the first time, but certainly not our last time together, the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 1. It's no secret that we live in a world that is filled with false religion and idolatry. The world's been riddled with false gods and false religion since the earliest days of human history, Because all men know instinctively through conscience and creation that there is a God and that they are guilty and accountable to God. And there is a constant attempt then to pacify their guilty conscience through the creation of man-made gospels and man-made gods. The Bible is clear that the unbelieving man is dead in his sin and does not seek for the true God. But that does not mean that he's not religious. In fact, all men are religious in one way or another. Even those who claim to be atheists end up creating their own type of religion that's really not built upon disbelief in God, but rather rejection and hatred towards God. And this mortgage board of false religion that fills our world has caused many Christians to ask the question how do we know definitively that our religion is the true and right religion? How do we know that our God is the one true God and that our gospel is the one true gospel? Is the Christian faith simply built upon a sort of religious house of cards in which we blindly believe what we've been told by others, or does it have a true and sure foundation? Is there some definitive proof that Christianity alone is the right and true religion? Well, friends, it's my joy and honor this morning to announce absolutely yes. It is true that Christianity demands faith, but our faith is not a blind faith that has no real foundation. Our faith, in fact, the entirety of our religion as Christians, is built upon the person and work of Jesus Christ. At the foundation of our gospel and our faith and our, our trust in the Scriptures, Stands the perfect Son of God. He is the crown jewel and object of our faith, our hope, and our love. And it's because of this fact that I am thrilled to begin our wonderful study of the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews is a masterpiece of Christology. That is the theology directly about the Lord Jesus Christ. It's it's a masterfully written articulation of who Christ is and what he has accomplished. In these verses, we will uncover line after line of argumentation proving that Jesus Christ is superior. That is the theme of Hebrews the superiority of Christ. Jesus is superior in the sense that he's the fulfillment of the old covenant and the centerpiece of the new. The old covenant is the shadow, but Jesus is the substance. Jesus is greater than the prophets, greater than Moses. He's greater than the angels. He's greater than the Levitical priesthood. Jesus, in fact, is a better sacrifice because by his own blood he has entered into the very presence of God where he sits even today until the Lord, the Father, uh, brings the appointed time in which his enemies will be crushed under his feet and he will reign in righteousness over his people as the rightful king of kings and lord of lords. The author of Hebrews, as we will find, is well-studied in the Old Testament. He knows the Old Testament well, and it will cause us week in and week out to go back to the Old Testament and make sure that our understanding of the Old Testament is is accurate so that we can understand the arguments that he is making. In fact, one of the reasons I chose Hebrews, I I was bouncing between do I do an Old Testament book or a New Testament book, and I chose Hebrews because... You really get both. We will be in the Old Testament so much in order to understand this book that we will get a well-balanced picture of the Scriptures. But before we dig into this masterpiece, let me just give you a little bit of a backdrop, a little bit of context about the book of Hebrews. You understand that every inspired uh, book in the Bible has two authors, a divine author and a human author. We know from 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 that all scripture is inspired by God, that is breathed out by God himself. And therefore, it's profitable for teaching, for proof, for correction, for training in righteousness. But the Bible also is clear that there were human authors through whom God brought this revelation. We see that in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21. Where Peter says, but know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will. But men, moved by the Holy Spirit, spoke from God. There we have both authors together. We have the human author that sort of served as the pen in God's hand to write the inspired words of Scripture. Now in most cases, we know both the divine author and the human author when it comes to the books of the Bible. But this is one of those rare cases in which the author chooses not to reveal his identity. Now, you can read books and books, literally, on different theories about who wrote the letter to the Hebrews. But at the end of the day, the truth is any line of reasoning around this is futile in the end because there's no objective way to say In fact, people have written doctrinal dissertations on this, only to come to the end of hundreds of pages to say, but ultimately we can't know. The truth is, God is the inspirer of this letter, and that's as far as we can go. Now, there are some... Some pieces of information given to us in the letter itself that give us certain pieces of information about the author without revealing his identity. For example, we know that he was a man because in chapter 11, verses 32, he uses a masculine pronoun to refer to himself. We know that he was acquainted with Timothy because he mentions Timothy by name in chapter 13. And and if he was an associate of Timothy, we could assume it's likely that he was also an associate of the Apostle Paul. It's clear in chapter 13 at the end of the letter that that he knew these people well, that he had a personal relationship with them, and that he had some level of authority that would have been recognized by the people reading the letter. We know the author was almost certainly not the Apostle Paul, although many have put him forward as a potential author, uh, because for several reasons. One, it doesn't follow at all the pattern of Paul's letters. Even the Greek is very different than the Greek in Paul's letters. But most definitively in chapter 2, if you look at, uh, we'll begin in verse 4, he's talking about how, the, how they received the good news of the gospel, and he says, God also testifying with them both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will, talking about the, the disciples. Um, go back to verse 1, though. Let's back up a little bit further. For this reason, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away from it. For if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable, and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Now notice this order. After it was at the first spoken through the Lord, so Jesus spoke it, it was confirmed to us. By those who heard, that would be the apostles and eyewitnesses, and then God testified to those apostles by signs and wonders. The author includes himself not as one who heard it from Jesus directly, but rather as one who received it from the apostles who heard it directly, and we know the apostle Paul says in Galatians that he received it directly from the Lord Jesus Christ, and so it, it can't have been Paul. Paul. But what we need to understand is that whoever the author of Hebrews was, he must have had a close relationship with one of the apostles because otherwise the the early church would not have accepted this book into the canon. Understand that every book in the New Testament was written either by an apostle directly or by someone very closely connected with an, an apostle sort of under their authority. We see that Hebrews is being quoted by by leaders in the early church as early as the mid-90s. And so this was a book that was very early on accepted by the church. That's as much as we can say about the author. The same is true of the recipients and even the location of the recipients. We don't know who they were. We assume they were likely Jews. That's why the book is called Hebrews, a title that was added later. That's not an inspired title. We assume they were Jews because he speaks so much from the Old Testament and at times without explanation, as if the people would have known what he was talking about. As we're going to find out as Gentiles, we often don't immediately know what he's talking about. We've got to go back to the Old Testament to make sure we understand. So it is very likely that the the audience was composed primarily of Jews. Finally, the situation that seems to have brought this letter about, while we can't be definitive here... must have been something to do with the author feeling the need to ground these Christians again in their faith. Over and over again, he warns against apostasy. He warns against falling away from so great a salvation. Obviously, there must have been some external pressure, whether it was from persecution from, from Rome or from other, other uh, Jews who were trying to draw them back into some form of, of Judaism and adding that to the gospel. We can't be sure. But clearly, his desire is for them and for us to have a great confidence in the Lord Jesus Christ and the gospel. And so he comes back to that theme over and over again so that there, there will be no doubt That Jesus Christ is superior over all. I want you to keep that theme, the superiority of Christ, burned in your mind. Because if you've ever read Hebrews and gotten confused, it's probably because you may not have understood the theme. But once you understand the theme, that all he's doing is proving that Jesus Christ is superior, all of a sudden you see this flow. He's more superior than the prophets, than Moses, than the angels, than the priesthood. He's just proving the superiority of Christ over and over again. And he begins in verse 1 by proving that Jesus is superior to the prophets. Let's look at Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets, in many portions and in many ways, in these last days, has spoken to us in his Son. That's as far as we're going to make it this morning. There's so much here in these words as we will find. Really, this is what the author is is saying here. It's that God's final and complete revelation has been given through his Son. God's final and complete revelation has been given through his Son. And and what he's going to do here is show us two different stages uh, of revelation. Revelation of how God brought his revelation to us. Stage number one, I've entitled God's initial revelation in verse one, and stage two will be God's final revelation in the beginning of verse two. But let's look at this first stage of God's revelation, God's initial revelation. Now, I have to be honest up front and admit that I couldn't find an English translation that I was really happy with when it comes to capturing the word order of what the Greek text actually says. The, the, The Bible here that we have in the NASB is accurate as far as the content, but the word order is very different than the actual Greek text. Let me give you a literal translation, just word for word. This is the order in the Greek text. In many portions and in many ways, formerly, God spoke to the fathers by the prophets. Now, I don't want to confuse you, but I'm going to use that translation as we walk through this because the author intentionally is setting up a contrast here, and you can see it in the word order of the Greek language. And so I want to stay with this word order. And what we see here are four different aspects of God's initial revelation. Four aspects of God's initial revelation. Aspect number one is the method. How did it come? He begins in many portions and in many ways. In many portions and in many ways. What the author is describing here is the method of revelation of the Old Testament scriptures. Understand that the Old Testament was compiled over a period of roughly a thousand years the first books of the Bible in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, uh, go back to about 1445 B.C. with the timing of the Exodus when they were given to Moses. And then Malachi, who was the last prophet of the Old Testament, wrote somewhere in the mid-400s B.C. And so as you do the math, it's right around 1,000 years over that span that the Old Testament is written And so when the author of Hebrews describes the Old Testament as having come in many portions, that's what he's talking about. That They got these little snippets over time through different divine messengers or prophets. Also, he says it came in many different ways. And as you read the Old Testament, you understand this. Sometimes God would speak to a prophet directly like he did to Moses in the burning bush. Sometimes he would speak uh, to a prophet through visions like Ezekiel in Ezekiel 1. Sometimes it came through dreams. I have even read that this morning in Daniel in my Bible reading time. It's Nebuchadnezzar, who was at the time a pagan king, has a dream, and yet the prophet Daniel interprets that dream and gives us revelation through that. So we see these different, different ways in which God spoke the Old Testament revelation. The point is that the Old Testament canon was given by God over a long period of time in these short little snippets. This method of revelation then left the the Old Testament believers with a lot of divine truth and also a lot of questions. As they tried to piece these things together and piecemeal these different pieces of revelation into understanding what is it that God is telling us. On the pages of the Old Testament we have these, these glimpses of a coming Messiah that begin all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. He would come and he would crush the head of the serpent and be the, the gracious, righteous ruler of his people. But the exact details of exactly who he would be and the, the timing of his coming uh, were, were veiled. And over time, God progressively shared more and more information about that. But even still, it was reading the Old Testament, it was like reading through a veil and trying to see the details. Many portions and in many ways. Next, he describes a second aspect, the timing. When did this initial revelation come? He describes it with one word, formally. It could also be translated long ago. This is just a a way that the, the, the author is describing this initial revelation as being part of a different era of time. Understand that the Jews, interestingly, thought of history in the way that we now mark history. We have B.C., and A.D., right? We have before Christ. Christ stands in the middle of history. That's how the Jews thought about history. They, they knew there was this period before the Messiah, and then he would usher in a new time period. When he says formally, he means those days back before the Messiah had come. Thirdly, he mentions the recipients of this initial revelation. But before giving us the recipients, he brings into The sentence, the subject of the sentence, I mean, grammatically, the subject of the sentence, who is God the Father? He says, God spoke. In many portions and in many ways, formally, God spoke. Now we have to stop right here for just a moment and understand the magnitude of those two words God spoke. The reason that we as Christians are able to have confidence that our gospel and doctrine is the one true doctrine of God is because he graciously chose to speak to us. He chose to tell us. Understand that we cannot know God unless he chooses to reveal himself. There's no amount of human searching or philosophizing or pontification that can bring us to an accurate understanding of God on our own. God is a transcendent being. That means he is outside of us. He is separate from us. We are finite. He is infinite. We cannot even begin to wrap our minds around who he is unless he chooses to tell us. And the good news is, the author says here, God spoke. In his grace, God condescended to peel back the curtain just a little bit over time to say, this is who I am, this is who you are, and this is how you can have a relationship with me. You see, before that happened, all that man had was what we call general revelation that is man has a conscience and man has creation and from those things we can know that god exists we can even know that we are accountable to god We can know that God is all-powerful. Go read Romans 1. He lists these things that we can know just from creation. But what we cannot really know is the true character of who God is and the gospel. We're cut off to how to be reconciled to God if all we have is a conscience and creation. What that leaves us then is in this state of just constant conviction over sin because our conscience is convicting us but with no knowledge of what to do. That's why we need what we call special revelation or specific revelation that we have in the scriptures so that we can know God and we can know his plan of redemption. This phrase, these two little words, God spoke, are an incredible expression of the grace of God. He has explained to us who he is. Christian, don't ever take that Bible in your hands for granted. What a gift. God's spoken to us. May we never, never stop cherishing the Bible. But in context here, the author's referring to God's speech to a very specific group of people. Who exactly did he speak to? He says, to the fathers. To the fathers. Now, fathers can be used in different ways in the scripture. Sometimes it refers specifically to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But here it's just more generally meaning the the Jews' ancestors. He spoke to our ancestors in the past tense formally in many portions and in many ways. And now finally he gets us to a fourth aspect. How exactly or through whom did God bring this previous revelation? Aspect number four, the messenger. The author writes, through the prophets. Through the prophets. In the years prior to the coming of Christ, God communicated revelation to his people directly through divinely appointed and chosen and verified messengers called the prophets. I want us to take a moment and dive deep here on this concept of God speaking through the prophets because it's crucial that we understand the significance of this in the same way that the original audience would have understood what this means. There are two key reasons I want to take a pause and look at this. One, I want you to know that we can have good reason to have confidence that the Bible is the Word of God. And we'll see that here as we look at how the Word came through the prophets in the Old Testament. But Also, we we need to understand the the special role played by the prophets here because it's going to help us understand the magnitude of what the author is communicating about Jesus. If you have a lower view of the prophets, you you may not understand exactly what the author is communicating in this text. Understand that the prophets in the Old Testament were not self-appointed. They were not appointed by kings or governmental officials, and they were not selected by popular vote. God chose those who would serve as his mouthpiece to the people. And, And hear this. He clearly testified to his choice of these men so that everyone would be clear on who were true prophets and who were false prophets. We have to understand this. Now, if you were a Jewish person at this time and we asked you, who is the premier prophet? Everyone would say, Moses. Moses is the the premier prophet in the Old Testament. Certainly, there were other godly men who preceded Moses, but understand that when it comes to written revelation, that begins through the ministry of Moses in 1445 B.C. And What's interesting is that with Moses, God does two things. God validates Moses in front of all the people so that everyone will know undeniably that he is God's man, that he is a prophet speaking on God's behalf. And then God lays down a pattern through Moses of how future prophets will come and be verified after him. This is how we can have confidence that what's contained in the scriptures has been verified by God himself. First of all, I want us to take a moment and see God's validation of Moses. Turn to Exodus chapter 19. Exodus 19. I promise this little journey will be worth it. Exodus 19. Remember the context here. Uh, God's just led the people out of Egypt uh, under the leadership of Moses. There were these ten plagues that God brought against the Egyptians and, until Pharaoh finally lets them leave. But even then, he chases them through the sea that God had parted, and God closes it on the Egyptians, and they are finally free. But now that they're in the wilderness, and they're finally a people that is free, they need some instructions, they need some organization, and they need a covenant with God on how they're going to relate to God. So listen to how this takes place. This is Exodus 19 beginning in verse 1. We're going to read a good portion of chapter 19. In the third month after the sons of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that very day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. When they set out from Rephidim, they came to the wilderness of Sinai and camped in the wilderness. And there Israel camped in front of the mountain. Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the sons of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine." And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all the words which the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses brought back the words of the people to the Lord. The Lord said to Moses behold I will come to you in a thick cloud so that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe in you forever Notice that Then Moses told the words of the people to uh, to the Lord "'The Lord also said to Moses, "'Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow, "'and let them wash their garments, and let them be ready for the third day. "'For on the third day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. "'You shall set bounds for all the people all around, saying, "'Beware that you do not go up on the mountain or touch the border of it. "'Whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death.'" No hand shall touch him, but he shall surely be stoned or shot through, whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the ram's horn sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people, and they washed their garments. And he said to the people, be ready for the third day, do not go near a woman. So it came about on the third day, when it was morning that there were thunder and lightning flashes and a thick cloud upon the mountain and a very loud trumpet sound, so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was all in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire, and its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain quaked violently." When the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him with thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, go down, warn the people, so that they do not break through to the Lord to gaze, and many of them perish. Now we'll stop there, the, the, the account continues, but what I want you to see here is this beautiful, wonderful scene of God visibly displaying his presence in such a way that the entire people of Israel can see it. Conservative estimates of the amount of people there was around 600,000, but it could have been up to, to 2 million people are gathered at the foot of this mountain. If you're God and you want to testify to that many people at one time that you are God, that you are there, and that a certain person is your messenger, how would you do it? how about setting the entire mountain on fire with your presence so that it's like a furnace of smoke going up and and having trumpet blasts with no one else on the mountain, by the way. Those trumpet blasts are coming from the mountain. There are no people up there. And that when Moses speaks to God, it says he answered him with thunder. I think the people got it. And we know that that part of this display was certainly to put the fear of, of God literally in the people But also in verse 9, what's the reason that God said? He said, The Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will come to you in a thick cloud so that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe in you forever. What is he saying? Moses, I'm going to make it undeniably clear that I've chosen you and you alone to be the mediator and to be the spokesperson to the people on my behalf. And the people get it. Nobody. Nobody went near the mountain. Everybody trembled at the sight of God, and one man goes up that mountain to speak to God, and that man was Moses. Why? Why Moses? Well, that's God's prerogative. Understand that we. this is not necessarily to give us an exalted view of Moses in and of himself. It's to give us an exalted view of God and to understand that we can have confidence that Moses was chosen of God and therefore the revelation that he gave is trustworthy because God testified to it. He did it on other occasions as well when his brother and sister Sinfully challenge his leadership, and his sister ends up with leprosy. On another occasion, Korah and rebels against him with others, and uh, God swallows them alive with the ground. God testified that Moses and Moses alone was his chosen messenger, and Moses then writes the first five books of the Old Testament. But that's not all. After having testified to the fact that Moses was God's chosen messenger, through Moses. We have this test for future prophets. I want you to see there was now a test given so that Israel would know who were true prophets and who were false prophets. The book of Deuteronomy is Moses' final instructions to the people of Israel before his death. Okay, at Sinai that we just read in Exodus, stay with me here, he gets the law for the first time. But then they wander around in the desert for 40 years, remember, because the people are sinful and that generation dies. Now in Deuteronomy, they're, they're, they're about to enter into the promised land. Moses is going to die and hand over the reins to Joshua. But before he does that, he reiterates the law yet again and calls this new generation to commit to follow Yahweh before they enter into the promised land. As part of that, he explains that other prophets are going to come. And here's the criteria, two criteria for true prophets. Number one, they must not contradict previous revelation. They must not contradict previous revelation. This is Deuteronomy chapter 13, verses 1 to 5. He says, If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or the wonder comes true concerning which he spoke to you, saying, Let us go after other gods whom you have not known and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God is testing you to find out if you love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul. It goes on to explain there, basically, even if a person can do miracles, if they contradict what I've said before, don't listen to them. And in fact, that person is to be put to death as a false prophet. But secondly, the second criteria is that the prophecy must come true. The prophecy must come true. We see this in Deuteronomy 18, verses 15 to 22. It says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your countrymen. You shall listen to him. This is according to all that you asked of the Lord your God in, in Horeb on the day of the assembly, saying, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God. Let me not see this great fire any more, or I will die. The Lord said to me, They have spoken well. I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I commanded him. We'll stop there just for the sake of time. Basically, what Moses is saying, what God is saying through Moses, is Moses is a verified messenger and other messengers will come after him that will also be verified messengers. He goes on to explain in that passage that they will know the true prophet from the false prophet because what the true prophet says will come true. And if a prophet prophesies something and it doesn't come true, he says, don't listen to him, I have not sent him. By the way, just as a side note, this is why this, this new teaching of sort of a secondary level of prophecy that's popular today that, that says that we can prophesy and give real revelation, but it can be fallible, so sometimes it's right and sometimes it's not, is, is a false idea that has no basis in Scripture. The Bible says that a true prophet, if you want to be a prophet, then you better speak the truth for God. And if what you say does not come true, the Bible says you are a false prophet there's either real revelation or there's no revelation there's no in between now just before his death Moses hands over leadership to Joshua this is in Deuteronomy 34:9 it says now Joshua the son of Nun was filled with the spirit of wisdom for Moses laid his hands on him and the sons of Israel listened to him and did as the Lord had commanded Moses and then in the opening words of Joshua we see this confirmation that now Joshua is speaking uh, on behalf of God, because God's speaking to him. Joshua 1, 1. Now, it came about after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, that the Lord spoke to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' servant, saying, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise, cross this Jordan, you and all this people, to the land which I'm giving to them, to the sons of Israel. Now, I've gone through all of this just to show you that the pattern is now set up. Moses is undeniably God's man. He says, God's going to raise up other prophets, and here's how you tell that they're true. And we see that happening first with Joshua, but that begins a successive or a cyclical pattern now under the old covenant in Israel's history as prophets begin to speak on behalf of God. What's crucial to understand is that each one of these true messengers. If, if, they have, if there's scripture under the name of a prophet, it's because that prophet was verified by God by the tests given to Moses. So we can have confidence then that God has testified to the scriptures. Now, we don't have time to go through all of these examples, but I just want to mention that there were many times, as you read the Old Testament, that false prophets would try to come against God's true prophets. Right? We see this all the time. We see it with Elijah. We see it with Jeremiah. We see it in several places. And God, in those instances, testifies to his true prophet because what they say comes true. We see it with Elijah at Mount Carmel, Jeremiah and Hananiah in Jeremiah 28, the prophecy against Jeroboam's false altar in 1 Kings 13, and the royal official that's trampled to death for disbelieving Elisha in 2 Kings 7. These are just a couple of small examples of God testifying to which prophets are his and which ones are not. All that to say, these men, having been validated by God, added to the Scriptures to give us the Old Testament, and the Jewish people rightfully esteemed these men. They esteemed Moses. They esteemed these other chosen servants of God. Why? Because God had undeniably verified that they were true prophets who spoke for him. I've shared that with you because I want you to have confidence, first of all, that the Bible can be trusted. Not because of the testimony of men, but because God has seen fit to testify to his word. But secondly, I want you to be set up to understand the magnitude of what the author of Hebrews is going to say next. Now turn back with me to Hebrews. With that context of of how the prophets were verified and how they spoke and the esteem with which the people would have held them and given to them, and rightfully so, we come to stage two, God's final revelation. God's final revelation. Back, let's read beginning in verse 1 again. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets, in many portions and in many ways, in these last days, has spoken to us in his Son in his son understand there is an intentional contrast being made here between the messengers of the first stage of revelation and the messenger of the second he phrases this in such a way that it's clear that there is a distinction here now let me be clear to say this that the the old testament and the new testament are equally inspired scripture Therefore, they are equally true, equally beneficial, and equally authoritative. He's not saying that the Old Old Testament revelation is somehow sort of a secondary kind of revelation to the New Testament. Instead, he's pointing to the finality and the completion of God's revelation and to something very special about the messenger who gave it in this second stage. This messenger is superior to... To the prophets. So, with our our remaining time, let's look at three aspects of God's final revelation. We've seen his initial revelation. Look with me at his final revelation. The first aspect, again, here is the timing. He says, in these last days. Now, this was a popular way for authors of Scripture to refer to Uh, to the time of Messiah. Remember, as I said, history really boils down to two periods, before Christ and after Christ. Jesus ushered in this new time period that the Bible calls the last days. We live in the last days, according to Scripture. Now, the the Bible did not say that the last days would necessarily be short. Obviously, we're already at about 2,000 years, but nevertheless, we are in this This church age of the last days, in which God is redeeming his people through the preaching of the gospel, he's building his church until the the day that the Messiah will return, strike down his enemies, and set up his uh, millennial kingdom. We are in the last days. But next, he turns to the recipients. To to whom did this revelation come? Aspect number two, the recipients, he says, to us. In these last days, God has spoken to us. Now, obviously, in context, he's referring to the original audience here. He's calling them to understand the privilege that they have. No longer are they confined only to the, the Old Testament revelation that was given formerly to their ancestors through the prophets, but they themselves have received revelation from God. And of course, in a sense, that phrase to us extends to us because we still have it. We have it here, contained in the scriptures. We too have received this new revelation. Understand that the author is trying to cement our confidence in the truthfulness of the gospel and the reality of of Christ as the exalted Son of God who's superior to the prophets. Astonishingly, get this, we have something that the godliest old covenant saints never had. We have revelation that Abraham didn't have, that Moses didn't have, that Jacob didn't have, that David didn't have. We have the privilege of the scriptures given through the Son. Listen to how Peter talks about this. First Peter chapter one, verses 10 to 12. He says, "As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow." It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you in these things which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Things into which angels long to look. The initial revelation came in fragments over a thousand years but here this this final revelation comes all at once through one messenger. That brings us now to the third aspect, which is really the highlight that he's been drawing to. The the, the pinnacle of this text here ends with these words. This is the high point in his son. In these last days, God has spoken to us in his son. Understand that that pattern that I went through before that began with Moses of these prophets coming one after another, that continued on through the prophet Malachi, and then God suddenly went silent. For 400 years, the people of Israel did not have a true prophet. They did not have a new revelation from God. And so the prophets were, were, were pouring over, or the scholars were pouring over what the prophets had written, trying to understand where is the Messiah, when is he coming, what's going to happen. God is silent. For 400 years, just imagine the anguish they must have felt. No true prophets coming. Until finally, one day, an old man is drawn by Lot to be the one who would go in and burn incense in the temple, a man named Zacharias. And as he was there, the silence is broken. And God tells Zacharias that he's going to be the father of a prophet named John. And John would prepare the way for the Messiah. But there's something else. You see, back in Deuteronomy, when I read from Deuteronomy 18, I left out intentionally an important detail. Let's look back again at Deuteronomy 18, verse 15. It says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your countrymen. You shall listen to him. This is God speaking to, uh, through, to and through Moses. God's going to raise up, but notice he says, a prophet, singular. You see that? He's going to raise up a prophet. He doesn't say he's going to raise up prophets, plural, although that is what happens. But he says specifically, in the singular, God's going to raise up a prophet. And then, curiously, we read at the end of Deuteronomy, uh, notice what it says. It says in Deuteronomy 34, verses 9 and 10, it says, Now Joshua, with the son of Nun, was filled with the spirit of wisdom, for Moses had laid his hands on him, and the sons of Israel listened to him, and he did as the Lord had commanded Moses. Verse 10, Since that time no prophet has risen in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. But what did Moses say? A prophet's going to be raised up like like me, and then we have here, but since then, no prophet like Moses has ever come. Understand that the people in the the Old Testament began to put it together that they were to be expecting a prophet. Not just a prophet, but the prophet, one that would be like Moses speaking face-to-face to God. Many began to speculate that this prophet would be the Messiah. In fact, when Jesus begins to preach, listen to what some people begin to say. John 6, verse 14. Therefore, when the people saw the sign which he had performed, they said, This is truly the prophet. Who is to come into the world? They're talking about Deuteronomy 18. They're saying, here he is, the prophet, the one like Moses, he's here. And in Acts 2.22, Peter testifies, yes, Jesus is the prophet, the one promised in Deuteronomy 18. Only what we see now in Hebrews is that Jesus is so much more than just a prophet. He is the prophet of prophets because he is also the son. He's the Son of the Living God. In these last days, God gave us His full and final revelation in the person of His own precious Son. Understand what this means. The Son prophesied in a way that the prophets could never do. Why? Because when Jesus was on earth, He was not just speaking prophecy. He himself was the revelation of God. In his very person, everything he did was the revelation of God. Everything he said was the revelation of God. He was God in flesh. God became incarnate in Christ. That's why in John 14, 6, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He says, I am the truth. You want to know truth? Know me. Not just what I say. I'm truth in human form. Jesus, the Son, reveals the Father in a way the prophets could never dream of. And again, that's not to say that the Old Testament is somehow less than the New Testament. That's not the point. The author's making a point between the prophets and the Son. He's saying, look at the Son. We have the revelation of God in the person of His Son. God's final revelation because He took on flesh so that we might see Him. Perhaps we could think of it this way, the difference between the revelation of God through the prophets and the Son. Imagine with me for a moment that we live in a culture that still practiced arranged marriages. And one day a father comes home to his adult adult daughter and says, Sweetheart, I have the best news. I've just spoken to a man and his parents and we've come to an agreement and I've given him permission to marry you. I found you a husband today. And the woman is, is excited, but obviously nervous because she's never met this man, and she has no idea what he looks like. She has no idea what his character is like, and she begins to wonder, will, will I like him? Will we be compatible? Will I find him to be attractive? Does he have the character qualities necessary to raise our children rightly? Will he be able to provide for me financially? All of these questions begin to enter her mind, and, and so she asks her father, Dad, tell me about this man. What is he like? He says, oh, daughter, don't you know that I love you? I would never give you away just to any man. No, this is a special man. I know it's hard, but you have to trust me that that, that this is a good man, a man that will love you and a man that you will love. And so the preparations are made, and the days and the months roll on and roll by, and the wedding day finally comes And as is customary, the the bride puts on the the best and most beautiful dress that her family can afford. And she also puts on a beautiful but thick veil over her face. And as she begins to make her way down the aisle, she's, she's peering through that veil trying to see the groom. And at first, from the back of the room, she can just make out the edges of his form. But as she gets closer and closer to the front of the room, he becomes more and more in view until finally she's standing there face to face, but still looking at his face through the veil. And so she can see it in ways that she couldn't from the back of the room and that she couldn't in her mind's eye from her father's description, but still it's pixelated as she looks at his face through the veil until finally... The groom gently takes the veil and removes it from her face. And she looks in the face of what is to be her husband and she sees. And she sees in his face and his eyes that he is all that her father said and more. Christians, that's what we have in the son. We have the scriptures as God began to tell us about the son as he was coming. And we have these, these details and they become more and more clear as he, this prophet tells us this and this prophet tells us this. And we're looking but we're looking through this, this veil and we can kind of see but not really until finally God says here he is in the son, in the flesh. Look at him in the face. And when we open the pages of scripture we look in the face of Christ. Don't you see the treasure that we have? This is what the author of Hebrews is trying to say. He's saying, yes, the prophet spoke in many portions and in many ways, but in these last days, he has spoken to us in the Son. We have the words of God. We not only have the words of God, we have the person of God in his perfect Son. This is what he's trying to say obviously there's so much more to unpack about this son and we will do that next week as we see exactly how has he spoken through the son and in exactly what ways is he so superior to the prophets he will tell us in detail but I want us to turn our mind this morning to two crucial ways that we should respond to just this initial verse first of all Cherish and obey the word. Cherish and obey the word. Christian, I hope you now see more clearly the treasure that we have in the scriptures. The eternal God, our creator, has graciously chosen to reveal himself verifiably through his chosen messengers. And now we have that revelation neatly bound for us in a book. And we can read it, and we can study it, and we can memorize it, and by God's grace, we can live it. But never, never neglect the precious gift of Scripture. If it's sadly collecting dust on your shelf, pick it up, dust it off, read. Know this treasure that God has given us, but don't just know it. Seek by the power of the Holy Spirit to live it, to obey it. And then secondly, cherish and obey the Son. Cherish and obey the Son. Not only do we have God's written revelation, we have his incarnate revelation in the person of Jesus Christ. In the Son, we see the Father perfectly. Here's the amazing thing about Jesus. He did not come only to reveal God and his truth, but to purchase God's people with his own blood. Jesus came so that you could not only know God, but be reconciled to him forever. Jesus came because every single one of us have sinned against God. We've broken God's law. We are guilty before God. We have no excuse. If we're honest with ourselves, we know that. We know that we've not been good before the Lord, that even our our best deeds have been tainted with sinful motives. And we are guilty. If God were to give us what we deserved, we would be eternally separated from him in hell, rightfully so. But Jesus came, and in his revelation of the Father and the truth and the gospel, he laid down his perfect life to pay the penalty that our sins had earned. And then he rose from the grave. And understand, in that resurrection... That is the miracle that he himself prophesied that proved that he is the prophet of prophets, the very Son of God, and that the Father has accepted his sacrifice on the cross for sin. And the Bible says that if you will repent of your sins and put your faith in Jesus Christ, then you will come to know this Lord Jesus Christ, and your sins will be forgiven. You will be made new and be able to be with him forever. I pray that you know the Son Pray that you've turned from your sins and put your faith in him. But if you haven't, today is the day of salvation for you. If you will humble yourself before a holy God. Repenting of your sins and putting your faith in Christ alone. I look forward to our journey through the rest of Hebrews as we look at this glorious Christ.